0: Remember when you turned 18, and maybe somebody asked you, Okay, seriously, what do you want to do with your life? Uh, maybe you panicked because it's a huge decision, but then you maybe eventually jumped into a major in college that you liked best. But my guest today was somebody who picked and basically checked off every box. Truly a jack-of-all-trades, part boy genius, part mad scientist, video editor, artist, startup king, and most recently, TikTok viral video creator. Trust me, the list goes on. Outlier.org founder and Masterclass co-founder Aaron Rasmussen is the guy I'm talking about right now. And why would I have him on Everyone Talks to Liz? Well, he started coding at the age of seven. And at age 11, he was already taking college-level courses, sparking his passion for education. But after multiple successful startups and businesses built, Aaron has now decided that he's going to tackle one of the most difficult issues our country faces, quality higher education from the best of the best, but at a totally reasonable price. He's really been somebody who's standing on the cusp of technology and art for years, but totally self-driven. So I said, get him on here. We are so excited to share his story with you today. Aaron Rasmussen, welcome to Everyone Talks to Liz. Great to have you. Thanks so much for having me, Liz. Okay. Coding at age seven. Can I tell you what I was doing at age seven? I was drawing ponies in the margins of my homework at age seven.
1: Well, I got to tell you, your ponies are probably better than mine because I wasn't. (laughs) And now I have no pony skills whatsoever. (laughs) They just look like ovals with eyes on them. Well,
0: every kid, every little girl (laughs) wants to ride horses. And then, you know, as my mother sitting there rolling her eyes and saying, to what end, darling, you're not going to the Olympics. I was really into horses, but coding at age seven. Tell me about growing up a coder in Northern California.
1: Absolutely. So, you know, basically I loved video games and my mom is a very clever person. So she saw that all I wanted to do was play video games. So she said, I'll make you a deal. You can play video games at an equal amount of time that you use the computer as a tool. And I was like, well, you know, what does that mean? And she said, well, first you have to learn to type. So when I was like five or six, even earlier, she was like, yeah, so you do half an hour of Mavis Beacon teaches typing, and then you can play a half an hour of video games. So I learned to touch type. And then I was like, okay, now I know how to type. Now what do I do? And she said, learn how to program the computer. Here's a book. So if I learned how to program for half an hour, I could play video games for half an hour. So it was definitely a good motivation there. And it also, I think was just incredibly empowering because a computer was such like this sort of fantastical creature, especially, you know, this is, this is in the eighties and having some sort of kind of power over it uh, and being able to contribute to something you loved, right? I loved video games and I got to make them myself. Now, of course, Making your own video game when you're seven, it's not exactly the most complex thing. I think it was mostly just like, you know, I remember his sister and I programmed this thing that was you had to choose between two caves, and there's a dragon in one cave and treasure in the other. Oh, that's it. So that's the whole cute. game. I'm um, taking
0: the treasure. Let's put it that way.
1: Exa- and so you try to, but sometimes you get the dragon and you get eaten. So um, anyways, it took forever to make, and it was very simple, but it was, it was great. So yeah. So then, um, you know, when I was eight, I moved to uh, rural Oregon. So 12 miles outside a town of 600 people. Whoa. And then it's fun to keep using computers because there's not a whole lot else to do out there. <laughs>
0: Wait, can I just ask, your mom is an incredible person. That's all I have to say, because I just let my kids play on the computer. I should have traded it out. I should have done that. <laughs> What did your mom do as a profession?
1: So my mom graduated high school early and was a homemaker. Mm-hmm. And um, my dad was a middle school science teacher. Mm-hmm. And she actually went back and got her college degree at 45. So she now works for the VA. Um, and Brilliant. she, uh, rehounds uh, homeless vets.
0: You took your first college level course at age 11. Uh, and what was that course and how did you manage to convince, uh, I guess the college course people to give you that shot?
1: Yeah, it's, I, I can't believe you guys have really done your research. This doesn't come up that much. So I'm, I'm incredibly <laughs> impressed. Um, so my, my dad and I took it together. Um, we, it was a computer authoring course, so it was sort of think hyper card with light scripting on it.
0: Okay. And
1: it was at blue mountain community college, uh, which is in Pendleton, Oregon, uh, third largest roundup in the United States, Pendleton roundup. And so I think it was a lot easier to get in being that there was an adult there, but I just took to it. Like I loved it. I loved the fact that I was good at it and I could help my fellow students, even if they were 20 years older than me. And I think that that also helped build a lot of confidence. And I know we'll we'll get there, but I think Outlier uh, has done that for a number of students at this point. Where once you have the confidence that you can do college level work, you're so much more likely to throw yourself into it because it's scary. It's a scary concept, you know, especially growing up in the middle of nowhere, having not really having a set point for what you can and can't do.
0: Well, that's exactly the point because there are so many people in this world and I would have been one of them, I was one of them, who who did not have a shot at the so-called best of the best, Harvard, Yale, Amherst. There was just no way. And we also came from a family of five, five kids. We were all very close in age. And my dad, even though he was a surgeon, you know, we thankfully were in California. We had the UC system, which was very affordable. But today, it kind of isn't very affordable unless you get the full scholarship. So I I really want to hear about that. But going back to you're getting older here, so from 11 and your college courses, you're still stuck in high school, right? I want our listeners to know what happened to you in high school because this podcast is very much about overcoming big stumbling blocks to find success and not letting things stop you. And something happened to you in high school in a science class. I want to hear about that and talk about how you got over recovering from a chemical explosion.
1: Yeah. So when I was 15, I was in chemistry and going to school in the countryside is sounds kind of nonsensical. I think sometimes to people who have gone to school in larger metropolitan areas, for example, no one was wearing safety goggles Mm. in a chemistry class is the advanced chemistry class. Sounds crazy, but it's just the way we did it, right? You know, we also worked on our own cars without safety glasses and things like that. So uh, I, th- my teacher had given me a recipe, which was potassium chlorate and red phosphorus. It actually was making an, an impact explosive. Again, the countryside is very strange. Um, and <laughs> oh my it, was, God. <laughs> it was brand new chemicals, and um, I remember asking my friend Brander. Hey, could you grab me a periodic table? Because I'm pretty sure there's seven electrons in the P shell of one of these and one in the other. And he's like, Yeah, yeah. So he goes off to get it. And I'm like, Whatever. The teacher gave it to me. So I mix these things together. And, you know, it's a 10,000 foot per second explosion. You know, I'm instantly blind. Everything's dark. My ears are ringing. Uh, The chemical shower, of course, doesn't work because, you know, um, so I go to the teacher's lounge where there's a faucet. It only has hot water. So I'm like washing this chemical burn with, with hot water and ended up going to the emergency room, which is of course, you know, all the way in Walla Walla, Washington. It's a long ways away. You know, my dad drove me there since he was a, a science teacher at the school in the, the town next to us. He just drove to the school and picked me up and took me. And uh, you know, the last thing I remember is, are you going to give him something for pain? Cause the doctor was kind of freaking out because it, it burned my eyes black uh, about <sighs> like a third of my head was, was all burned uh, missing hair. It lit a uh, zinc sulfur, combination on fire and it, uh, burned molten zinc through the backs of my hands and all my fingernails. So, uh, I was not in great shape and I remember them just being like, um, um, my dad said, how about Demerol? And they just said Demerol, some number of CC. And I feel a, a pinprick and I wake up a day later mm. and total darkness. Um, I have no idea where I am. I have to use the restroom and I start to feel around and I realize I'm in my room at home oh. and, uh, I was blind. And, you know, they did not think I would get my vision back, even though I was, I was only totally blind. It was only total darkness for, you know, a week or so. The, as my eyes opened and I could see just the con- contrast of light and dark, which actually makes a huge difference. They were like, look, there's just not enough of your cornea left. It's not going <laughs> to, it's, it, it, you can't correct this with um, lenses or anything. I know it feels like you're getting your vision back, but but it's not. Um, and I was pretty happy to be alive. I mean, I really did think it was dead at first, just because you get that sort of silence and in, in darkness when the explosion first happens. So slowly my vision came back. I used emu oil on the burns. So I actually have all my facial hair and my eyebrow and uh, the hair on my head and the backs of my hands were scarred for a while, but they're, they're okay now. And I think it was just because I was so young, it, it grew, it, it all grew back. My eyes ended up fully recovering. Yeah. Um, my irises were shattered for about a month, uh, so they didn't respond to light or anything. And I had flash burns on my retina. Sorry, this, this just goes on and on. Um, it it was awful. It was awful. And the the lasting aspects. I mean, I had to wear <laughs> I had to wear special glasses for a year. You know, to to prevent any um, sunburns on all the new skin and stuff like this. The problem was that causes PTSD. You know, being in that in something that's that extraordinarily painful meant that I really couldn't go back into a lab after that. And I wanted to do chemistry. I loved chemistry and I couldn't, you know, I grew up in the woods, so you're, you shoot guns a lot and I couldn't even handle ammunition. I would like freeze up on it, trying to load something into a clip. So I, um, you know, that, that was a bit of a left turn on what I thought I might be doing. So I ended up graduating high school early, um, actually doing dual enrollment and going to school for advertising at Boston University on a Pell Grant and scholarships, five kids in my family as well. So not, not, oh, not a lot going around on a teacher's salary. I hear you. Um, and um, took community college courses over the summer to be able to finish my degree. And I transferred the man, which is probably where the original ideas for later in my career came from. Um, but it took me about five years. I had flashbacks for about five years. Um, and it was like full kind of catatonic flashbacks to the explosion, you know, sort of first person now, ultimately those stopped. And by the way, I highly recommend if somebody's in that situation to, to get mental health help. There's a lot of really great resources out there. And I did not know that at the time now growing up in the countryside, just not, not something you necessarily did. So, um, ultimately writing a video game about it with, uh, one of my good friends, Michael Stolfi. Uh, which ended up winning some awards and is now being made into a feature film by Radar Pictures.
0: This is amazing to me. So, you know, they always talk about y- you get lemons, life hands you rotten lemons, and you make delicious lemonade. That's what you have done. I don't want you to gloss over this video game. It's called The Blind Side, it only uses sounds to navigate, and it's been a huge hit. So, how did the movie come about?
1: So, yeah, the, I mean, the movie has been just such a, a surprise that. The video game itself, it's funny because my my uncle is blind from diabetes, and he said because, you know, he was already blind when this happened to me, and he said, you should write something about going blind, thinking you're blind, and then getting your sight back. I think that would be really cool. So my sort of expression of that was to try to write a video game about it. And of course, my friend Mike was getting, um, by the way, Mike is the VP of product at outlier.org now. We've worked together for years on stuff, and it's really nice. fun. Um, so- we we made this thing and got some coverage. We end up on you know putting on Kickstarter and it got in Wired and all this sort of thing. That was almost ten years ago, I think, nine or ten years ago. And last year we get a LinkedIn message from a producer at Radar saying, "Hey, we you know we did Jumanji and Spring Breakers and stuff like that, and we're really interested in this." And Mike and I are like, "What? Like our weird art game from from a decade ago?" And uh, so we hop on the phone. And they're just totally into it. And now it's being written by the Soska sisters, um, who are these twins that that um, have written some really cool horror movies. And uh, they're just—they were totally into it. They—they'd read all about it. They'd seen the playthroughs, everything. So it—it's been such a fun experience for Mike and I because we're—you know—we're building outlier.org right now. Um, but in the background, we're getting updates about this movie. It's called Unseen, but it's—it's uh, it's pretty cool.
0: Okay, who's going to play you?
1: <laughs> well, fortunately, fortunately, the since the movie is the video game, it's, it's about animation. a fictional character named Case. Now, here's okay. the funny thing: Okay, Case was played by Michael in our video game. <laughs> so we don't we don't know yet. We don't know, um, and I, I can't wait to find out. What's funny is Don, the the um, the woman in the video game, who's his girlfriend, is his was played by his real
0: life now fiance Michelle. Aww. So we get to see who gets cast as that. Oh, that's so exciting. You guys have to get a clause in there that you get a part. <laughs> cameo voice from all. Who cares?
1: Our, yeah. Our, our one requirement is that we didn't have to do anything
0: because we're too busy with, with our day jobs. There you go. <laughs> all right. You know, so we talked about at the start that you're a jack of all trades and you go from building video games to building a robotic sentry gun and, and then the U.S. Army. Somehow finds it. and and the experimental weapons research department came to your dorm room to check it out. I gotta know what that was like.
1: You have really done your research. well, so, let me
0: give uh, let me give my producer, Julia McGonigal, a lot of
1: credit for that too. So basically, in college, I was like playing in a band,, uh, that's actually what this microphone's from. I've been using it for like twenty years. Um, and I had no idea what I wanted to do. And uh, over the summer, I got a job at an advertising. Agency. And it's funny because in your intro to this, uh, this podcast, you mentioned how at 18, you kind of don't necessarily know what you want to do. I like never figured it out. I decided to just keep doing everything, um, which is a really fun way to do it. Although, you know, buyer beware when it comes to that because it leads you in a lot of directions. So I was working on ad agency and realized that that wasn't really for me, even though I'd gotten my degree in that. And I decided that I wanted to make some sort of robot over the summer. Because I thought it'd be so cool to make a computer affect the outside world in some way. And I never made a robot before. And I just chose the sentry gun because I thought it was funny. Uh, Put a BB gun on it. um, Shot a video of it shooting my little brother, which was pretty fun. Um, (laughs) Put it online. And this thing just blows up. I mean, two and a half days, half a million views. Whoa. And this is before YouTube. So these are people like directly going to the website. And I get all these emails, you know, some are just like, ah, you're, you know, you're going to ruin the world, this sort of thing. And I got this email from the U S military's, uh, Picatinny arsenals, experimental weapons division. And it says, we saw your thing. We're going to come see you on Tuesday and you cannot speak about this to anyone else. And your government appreciates your cooperation. And I was like, (gasps) Like, Oh, Yo, totally. And I was like, I thought I was just making something like funny. I didn't think it would be taken seriously. I assumed the military had built these or something, right? turns out it was the first one in the world. So sure enough, I meet up with these two guys from Picatinny Arsenal in a Dunkin' Donuts in Boston. And they come in and they give me a presentation for four and a half hours of all of their, in my dorm room, by the way, they set up a projector on my dorm room bed and, and show me all of the cool stuff they're working on and say, hey, you should, uh, Come work with the US military on this. Now, ultimately, um, I partnered with somebody I met through all those emails coming in, moved to near uh, Los Angeles straight out of school, and ended up turning the military down. And what's funny is they were just like, okay. And I'm like, that's it. Like, I expected black helicopters and this. They're like, no, you're a civilian. Like, you, you get to make your own decisions. I was like, oh, okay, great. So I ended up pivoting the company into an industrial robotics company that um, I built up and
0: then sold at 24. This is Everyone Talks to Liz, and we'll be right back. This is so indicative, and it really lays out how you became one of these check all the boxes and dive headfirst into life type of people. And to then transition to Masterclass, which, by the way, is the most incredible website that came to my attention at the start of COVID because the New York Times had a big full page ad. I think it was the Times. And I looked and I said, Oh my God. I can learn from Scorsese. I can learn from Annie Leibovitz how to do photography. I can learn from the best of the best, Frank Gehry on on creativity and architecture. It's just brilliant. Dan Brown, the best-selling author. It's just, to me, the most generous, brilliant idea. How did this come about, and how did you get people like that? How did you get these best of the best type of people, Shonda Rhymes, to do these kinds of masterclasses that anyone who pays a small fee is able to then learn from.
1: Thank you. Well, I appreciate the the kind words on it. Uh, it was incredibly difficult, is the answer. I mean, for David and I, that's my my co-founder, David Rugier, mm-hmm. and we... I mean, we wanted this to exist for ourselves, right? Like we wanted to take these classes, which is actually a great way to, to go about a business. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, hey, let's make the thing that we want. Well, the first seven months of that company were like us sitting in a borrowed office space, like calling Hollywood. <laughs> like literally, because like, where where do you start, right? Like, how do, you, how do you get one of these people to work with you? And the, the first person was James Patterson, best-selling author, guess. So he, it was pretty funny. He, um, you know, we'd gone through a number of different routes on him, and he called. It was basically like, "Is this legit?" Um, so David and I flew out to uh, it was like upstate New York, um, and we met up with him and and talked with him. And he loved it. He was like, "I, I try to do this all the time with my co-authors because he works with co-authors. So he spends a lot of time teaching people how do you write a best-selling novel." Um, so it was totally awesome. We filmed that with Bill Guntentag, who is a two-time Academy Award winner. So yeah, keep in mind the era that we did this in. Online education back then was like a webcam in the back of a classroom. And here we are with a two-time Academy Award winning director filming this thing. So then we get the footage back and I cut a trailer from it. And then we could show people what this thing looked like. And that, that had a huge effect, which was great. It was like, no, no, we trust us, it will look good. Because it was uh, Steve Kuzmirski, I uh, was the DP, and Bill Gotten tag, and they, they made it look gorgeous.
0: So James Patterson was your first. Who was your second? So the second one we
1: filmed was Dustin Hoffman, and the third was Serena Williams. Wow. Um, now, the people that signed on, I, th- th- it was Serena, Dustin, Usher, and Annie Leibowitz. So when we launched, we had two courses on pre-order um, or on waitlist, and three courses live, uh, Dustin Hoffman, James Patterson, and uh, Serena Williams.
0: Listeners, do you understand that this is a kid who grew up in farmland, Oregon, small town, who comes up with an idea and says, I'm going to do this. This is exactly the everyone talks to Liz spirit, Aaron. I'm looking right now at Judd Apatow. David Mamet, Aaron Sorkin. This is just the uh, the entertainment side here. And then you go into cooking. You've got Wolfgang Puck. You've got everybody who matters here. Gordon Ramsay, this is hilarious, cooking and plating ravioli. Gordon Ramsay is giving you his best of the best tips. There's just so much out here. I personally love all the ones that help you with terrorist negotiation, which I may never have to deal with, but I find it all very fascinating. Because sometimes when you're negotiating to land a job, it's like negotiating with terrorists, but you've got to then transition to what you're doing now. And that is outlier. Why is that different? And how is that different from masterclass?
1: Yeah. So um, I took a year off after masterclass to actually travel because you know I've been kind of nonstop for... Uh, actually, I started working when I was 12. Um, You're allowed to legally work in Oregon when you're 12, picking strawberries. So I picked strawberries. I could make eight bucks an hour, which was a lot back then. So I was pretty pretty thrilled about that. So I took a year off because I felt like I didn't understand the world well enough. You know, everybody talks about changing the world. Well, go see it. Mm -hmm. So I'd never been to India or China or East Africa or Eastern Europe, all these really important places for the future. So now granted, this is also a great excuse to just like go have an adventure. So like learn scuba diving, fly a glider, tear my Achilles tendon, get parasites, like all sorts of fun. But what I found after going to 28 countries was my story is not that unusual, that education can fundamentally change your position in life, right? Me going to Boston University, me being exposed to all of these different people and ideas and learning skills has allowed me to go from... You know, twelve miles outside a town of six hundred people, where you know there's not a lot going on. Um, You you jump your cars and bikes a lot. There's there you have motorized vehicles, and you you find that amusing. (laughs) So what I found is this is not unusual. But what is unusual is access to education. That this is expensive. College is expensive right now. Um, There are geographic constraints on people. There are time constraints, and I wondered why that was. Now, I thought back to this blog post that I'd read by Woody Flowers, and he said, there are a million Calculus one students every year at the college level. They spend on average $2,500 per course. That means in America, just in college, we spend $2.5 billion a year on Calculus one. And he said, well, why not spend $10 million and make the greatest calculus course ever? Because 40% of those students fail. So we're wasting a billion dollars a year in failed calculus. Crazy. Wild. Like I'd never sliced classes that way, right? I always think vertically like a degree, but -hmm. instead this is a a horizontal slice. So I set out to figure out why don't we have a great online solution? Why don't you and I know a place where we can go online and get college credit backed classes? So I set out to figure that out. And I researched why a lot of really smart people who are well-funded have tried to do this and it failed over and over again. Cost.
0: How much... Less expensive will outlier be for somebody who really would like to learn and wants that education but cannot afford it?
1: So, right now, it is 80% less than the average cost. So, it's $400 for a, an intro course. You get three college credits from the University of Pittsburgh, which are very transferable into to universities. But here's where we did something a little different where we said if you do all the work and you don't pass, you get your money back. So what we did is we aligned our incentives with the students' incentives. So they're paying to learn, not paying to be taught at. Which is a, a it's Brilliant. it's subtle, but it's incredibly important. So what that's resulted in, and you know, keep in mind the set points when we launched. Um, you know, people talk about completion rates of two percent, six percent, right? We, we've all heard these stories about these sort of massive online courses. We launched with near in person. Uh, completion rates. And in fact, over last summer, we had better than the national average in students completing and getting credit in our calculus course. Fantastic. So we are so excited about this. I mean, this, in many ways, this is like fixing what was wrong with my own upbringing. This is the access that would have been so meaningful to somebody like me. Uh, We've also launched a frontline worker scholarship so together with the University of Pittsburgh and University of Pittsburgh Johnstown we're giving away 3.8 million dollars worth of college credits so uh, if somebody's a frontline worker they can apply for this thing it's really easy it's like a minute video and they can take a course over the next two years because they're you know probably busy working right now and we want to make sure to um to allow for that so we're trying to just do two things increase access to high quality education and reduce student debt
0: I think this is so inspired because the pandemic exposed a very ugly underbelly of expensive college education, because they wanted you to pay the same amount sitting at home, looking at a computer screen, and then you begin to realize they keep raising their prices. They keep raising the cost well beyond the rate of inflation, Because they can. They know people are desperate for a college education. But to me, the most important aspect of what you're doing with Outlier is democratizing quality education at a much better price. I wish you and your team the best of luck with Outlier.org. Aaron, what an incredible story. I really appreciate you telling it to our Everyone Talks to Liz listeners. Thank you so much for having me, Liz. Okay. And you have to come back with your next boondoggle or whatever it is. I mean, this is incredible. I like the, <laughs> I like the gun. I like the video games. I like masterclass. I mean, you're in your thirties. I want everybody to listen to his story and understand it doesn't matter where you are physically in life. If you have the heart, the soul, and the ambition to just get out there and grab success, Aaron is your model. Thank you so much. Thanks so much, Liz good luck to you. And and by the way, once you get your money, or once you even have a teeny bit of it, you got to invest it, you got to grow it, you got to protect it. And you know, just watch me Monday through Friday, 3pm Eastern on Fox Business. We try and help people do that every single day on the Clayman Countdown. Thanks again for listening. I love hearing on Twitter how much you guys like each episode. So keep them coming at Liz Clayman. And we'll see you next time.